Now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. In Episode 9, Season 2, Just Science interviews Ray Wickenheiser, director of the New York State Police Lab System and current ASCLAD president. Ray takes us down to Cajun country to the case of deranged Baton Rouge serial killer Derek Todd Lee, who targeted young women in the Baton Rouge area of Louisiana during the early 2000s. Just Science jumps into the details with Ray about the complex crime scenes Lee left throughout the city and discusses the significance of a muddy footwear impression, a computer cord, DNA evidence, and how they helped break the case for a clear path to conviction. Derek Todd Lee was convicted in 2004 and died on death row in 2016. Some content in this podcast may be considered sensitive and may evoke emotional responses or may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Funding for this season is brought to you by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. Welcome to the Just Science Podcast, a podcast for forensic science professionals. This week, we are in Dallas, Texas at the American Society of Crime Laboratory Directors Meeting. It's in early May of 2017. We've had a wonderful, wonderful week here so far talking to an awful lot of folks about some interesting cases, about leadership, about the business of forensic science. Today, we are very, very fortunate to have the distinguished president-elect, soon to be, by the time this podcast comes out, he will be the president of ASCLAD, Ray Wickenheiser. Welcome, Ray. Thank you for having me. It's quite an honor, I would think, to be the president of ASCLAD. So where do you see things being for ASCLAD right now and as you take the presidency? Okay, so first it is an absolute honor. Uh, thank you. It's been one of those things where since joining ASCLAD, even I was thrilled to join in 2000 when I became a young crime lab director. So it was one of those organizations that I always saw as you know, aspirational, something that looked at the greater whole of forensic science and brought together a lot of like-minded people to kind of rise to a higher level, help each other out and further what is a very noble profession. So I feel very humbled and honored to be a forensic scientist and then to be able to serve in this role is, is kind of you know, beyond my wildest dreams, but something I'm really looking forward to seeing um, how much further we can take what we do because I think we've got a, a lot of very dedicated, passionate people who work in the field and what we do I think is remarkable and kind of amazes me every day. And, so to be part of that and helping and further it is, I see um, as my mission and, and certainly something where um, many hands make the work light and going in the right direction, I just can't see how we can't make a big difference. There's been some great leadership of ASCLAD in, in recent years. Uh, Jeremy, of course, uh, has been a great president. Jody Wolf is a good friend of ours and some wonderful, wonderful people in ASCLAD. I've got some really big shoes to fill and that's humbling, but they've reassured me that they will be there for me and, and will be helping. And certainly I've, I've served on the board for a few years, so I've got to see how they operate and I've been able to kind of slowly ease into the position. And so there are a lot of great supporting people and I look forward to their help as we move forward. 
So right now you are in New York State, right? Correct. So what's your what's your position up there? So I'm the uh, crime lab system director. So we have approximately 230 staff in four labs. Our main lab is in Albany, and we have other satellite labs. And there's also a total of 19 labs total in New York State. So we are one of the larger players, but there's quite a number of labs. Like other states, there's a state police lab, but there's also local and city labs as well. Okay. And uh, how long have you been up in New York? Uh, three and a half years. However, this is my 33rd year in forensic science. So I can't keep a job. I just keep moving around. This is a great position. I love being there, and we have an absolutely wonderful staff. So where were you before New York? So before New York, uh, I was director of Montgomery County Police Crime Lab, and that is Montgomery in, County, Maryland? Exactly. So right okay. outside of D.C. I grew up in Montgomery County, yeah, wow. in Rockville. Beautiful area. So. Certainly loved it there. Um, this was just a big opportunity, too big to pass up. So I moved from there. Prior to that, I spent a couple of years here in Dallas. Before that, I ran Acadiana Crime Lab, which is in the heart of Acadiana, New Iberia, Louisiana, which is where my story starts today. Yeah, absolutely. Acadiana is a amazing place for forensic science. Exactly. It's a tight community and tight in that it's the same people there for careers and while we may move around we do cross paths a lot. He was the outgoing director and he was gracious enough to overlap as I came in to the lab directorship there for about a month. Mm -hmm. So he showed me the ropes and he also was a treasurer of the American Society of Crime Lab Directors so he brought me to the first meeting that I attended and as a new lab director it's wonderful to have him you know, mentor me and bring me in. So I, I owe him for that, and it was a great introduction to the organization. Oh, yeah, and uh, I want you to know I, I judge people to a very large extent, to the extent that they love mass spectrometry. Dave is a huge fan of mass spectrometry. I hope you are as well, and I don't know whether it pertains to the case that we're going to talk about. Or? It does not. It's one of my weaknesses, and I'll admit that right up front, being a trace evidence and DNA guy, I haven't not had the exposure to that instrumentation that I probably should have if sure. I had a proper forensic science background. <laughs> okay, well, we love trace <laughs> evidence people as well. Now, what David didn't tell you when he left is that you're going to be faced with one of the more complex, challenging cases that Acadiana has ever seen. Isn't that right? Oh, that's right, and it's something that we just never could see coming in big cases. You probably, you don't. And it was one of those things that surfaced with technology. I got to Acadiana in the year 2000. My first task in coming in was getting the lab accredited. David had made the application for accreditation and got the lab going. But that was a precursor to us being admitted into ENDIS, which is the National DNA Index System. So we got our accreditation within a year of me getting there. And then the state lab also needed to get their accreditation so we could get into the DNA database. And shortly after getting into the DNA database, the state police lab just down the road from us, 50 miles down the road in Baton Rouge, linked together a couple of rape homicides. Because we are a close-knit community, they alerted us that mm -hmm. to be on the lookout for these profiles. And as we were just starting up in the National Index, we really didn't have much in there. So we started looking for profiles that were similar, and then unfortunately, later that year, sure enough, we had our own case, and it linked to that same serial killer. So this we was unusual. Got so what, this was 2000? This is when it was in 2002. 2002. Right. So doing that kind of a crime series linkage of cases, so up to three at this point. That was three at that point. That, that would have been very, very unusual in Louisiana, almost anywhere in the country. Well, I don't know how unusual it was. I mean, certainly for us, coming from Canada with some experience, we had cases, but 
that was just part of here comes this new tool of DNA and what databases now could do in terms of linking similar crimes. And I wouldn't say Louisiana was early, probably one of the later states, and I'm sure other states had discovered it. We knew that we had serial killers out there, but to have such a direct link, I mean, there was a full profile in each one of these cases. You absolutely knew it was the same individual. And then because our database wasn't developed, we searched that database with, you know, the few people we had in it, couldn't match that person, so we, we had a whodunit, but we had DNA evidence, so we had something to be able to search suspects with. Sure. Now, Acadiana is actually like six, seven, eight parishes altogether, Eight right? parishes around Lafayette and New Iberia, so the parishes of Acadiana, but roughly 650,000 people that we served. Okay. And so we're one of a number of labs in the state, uh, independent. We have the state police and, of course, then several crime lab commissions. So Acadiana Crime Lab Commission oversaw my lab, and then there was a North Louisiana Crime Lab Commission, Western Louisiana Crime Lab, and then the crime labs clustered around New Orleans with the city police, Jefferson Parish, and then the state police. Sure. So uh, where in Acadiana, was it in Lafayette or was uh, it? New Iberia, which is very close. Well, I'm sorry, where the first case was? The first case was um, just outside of Lafayette in a rural area. The victim was actually visiting her mother's grave. Um, she went missing, her car was found, the window rolled down, it was pretty clear. A door, I think, was even hanging open. That there was, things were amiss, and she was visiting her, her mother's grave, went missing, and it was clear that she was there, but looked like she was taken and she was found by someone um, who was actually I think rabbit hunting who just stumbled across her in, in a field in some sort of a woody area. Was Lafayette relatively close to the other two or the other two up in Baton Rouge? The other two were closer to Baton Rouge. Okay. So about you said 50 miles away. About 50 miles directly down the I-10 corridor across what we call a Chafalaya Basin. So it's a large swampy area in between the two. So it's about 20 miles of, of raised roadway across that. But the various places you could kind of get underneath. The homicides continued and it was something that obviously the, I mean, the media got onto immediately. So there was an incredible, intense media scrutiny. And so we were immediately invited to the task force because one had been struck up at that point and to put the resources to trying to jointly solve this issue. Did the media know that the three cases were linked or was that something you all kept? They did. Okay. So this was one of those where decisions were made at a higher level, chiefs of police and DA involvement, but a lot of it was driven out of Baton Rouge. Just given that they had the first two cases, the media was already on it at that point. So we were sort of joining a large case in progress with our case and then coordinating with them. And again, we were always looking for that profile. As soon as we saw it, unfortunately from our case, another homicide, but matching that, to then pool together whatever investigative resources. So we were fortunate enough to have a whole lot of talent <clears throat> with our folks, and we'd done a lot of training with our crime scene investigators so that they knew what we could do in the crime lab and what we could look for. So one of the things that we found, in addition to, she had been sexually assaulted, so we had a, a full profile, and that's how we got the match. Mm -hmm. But we also had a running shoe print in the mud near the body, because it was apparent to us that she had been murdered elsewhere, and then taken by the individual a distance to uh, be discarded, if you will, in some trees. Because you knew that she was at the cemetery. She may not have been abducted at the cemetery, but likely she was, right? Right, and then murdered not at where she was actually dumped, so there was some shoe prints. And being it's Louisiana, uh, a lot of wet ground, so there was 
a pretty good shoe print. Now, I'm a big fan of footprint analysis as well. So, I'll, okay, so, so we'll be on common ground there. there now, yeah. now, yeah. We, now, now I'm speaking a language. Speaking to each other. Yeah. So uh, the time series at this point, how, how much sooner were the Baton Rouge murders uh, to the one we're you We're talking had? a few months. So okay. that was in the summer, and so ours was just before Christmas, and I remember because I was having family over and pretty much missed the whole Christmas sure. <laughs> because of this case, of course, and we were intensely into it and spent a lot of time Right. At this point, obviously, people in Acadiana already know that there's a serial killer that has Correct. hit at least three times. They're uh, obviously upset around Christmas time. Must have been enormous pressure on you all. And how much longer was it before he struck again? It seemed um, every month or so, or a month or two, and sort of around the holidays, you know, plus or minus, within a short period of time, it was up to five and then six. And we were trying really everything we could. So back to that running shoe. So what we did with that shoe was develop a print and then look at essentially every running shoe that we could find in the area to try to identify what kind of running shoe it was. So we discovered it was a specific model of Adidas, size nine. And we worked closely with a manufacturer to then determine where the running shoe was actually distributed found the stores within that entire area and discovered you know there was a number of stores that were selling it and then went to those individual stores and at this point as you can imagine the public was uh, very concerned there was uh, stories every single day uh, yes. it was lead story front page what we were doing what i mean um, very much to the state police um, us too but they were under um, a lot of media pressure what we were doing so we um, worked closely with the manufacturer, as I said, mm -hmm. to get those store locations, and people were incredibly cooperative. So um, this is the days of, of really manual, not digital. So store clerks pulled old cash register tapes, and we were able to find that there were 20 of those shoes that were sold. In Acadiana in, or in Louisiana? In the entire area. Okay. When I say the entire area, the whole Baton Rouge, Acadiana area. Okay. And 16 of those were sold through credit card. Mm. So our investigators tracked each one of those down, got DNA samples from each of those individuals. And unfortunately, of the 16, we did not get a match. Sure. But just based on that alone, 16 out of 20, we had an 80% chance of solving that case, just based on that running shoe lead. Do you know now, looking back, was he one of the four cash purchases? He was. Okay. So that was one of those post conviction, and again, I'm tipping what happened in the story here eventually, but um, interviews where one of our investigators asked the question and he had paid cash. Right. So it just sort of closed the loop, which we thought we knew, but we, I think he just needed to, <laughs> needed to know, did he have those running shoes and how did he right. pay? And so you're a trace evidence guy. Yes. I mean, so did you all look for things like fibers, hairs, and things yeah. like that? And were you able to develop leads off of that kind of evidence? We certainly looked for a lot there, but we needed some suspect clothing. So the difficulty was with how do you know, and when time goes by, there's a kind of perishability to evidence. So we found a number of hairs and fibers, but we really needed the suspect is what we needed. So what had happened in the media was there was a decision made, really somewhat of a DNA dragnet. There was a, a number of suspect 
items that were developed. There was a suspect scene, white half-ton truck going across the Atchafalaya Basin Bridge, which I mentioned in between the two. A body was found under the bridge of another burner victim of the DNA matching. And a truck driver who had pulled past a truck that was a white half-ton truck. It had a fish decal on the back. It had, he got a partial plate out of it and saw what he thought was a naked woman um, in the truck as he passed by. And then a short time later, sure enough, a victim turned up. So that was what was advertised. And people were invited to turn in people so that police could get a DNA sample. And in turn, our respective labs would do comparisons. Sure. So the DNA samples were pouring in for comparisons because we had known DNA profiles. So they were out of leads. We had a huge discussion with the task force what to do with this running shoe. You know, we had a debate and the decision was made to put out a picture of the running shoe in case somebody had seen that running shoe. Did you all have much in the way of linkages that you were doing using running shoes before? Because do you know maybe he committed a burglary or something of that nature where he may have left behind a... Well, we really didn't have databases or something to compare. Pretty much when you had a shoe print, you had to have a suspect shooter to do the comparison. So there's no yeah. place you could go and say, here's all those different places where we saw running shoe prints. We're still pretty much missing that today. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So there's just the tools of the day, but I thought what we had done with a shoe was certainly innovative and had a great mm -hmm. chance of doing it. So that once they put the picture out, I mean, it was one of those, you've got one shot. If somebody happens to recognize somebody, maybe they'll turn it in but then you're also advertising to the killer who's going to get rid of those shoes. Right. So there were those of us who were one side saying, keep looking for the shoes, don't say anything, and we'll try to find it. Maybe he'll use the same shoes and that will look out for the shoes or engage the public, but then once he hears it, those shoes are gone. Right. So that was the tactic, and no one unfortunately turned in somebody with similar-looking shoes, so that lead was gone. Sure. So he was up to four victims that you knew of at this and, point. And building. So we were looking at a number of things. One of the things that we had talked to our, our legal counsel about, and that was um, using familial searching. So we had a number of other cases where we had profiles that we had solved cases, so we owned the profiles from the crime scenes that we had this DNA and we had the ability to compare looking for relatives. Now and you must have done some other things though too to try to understand this individual and yeah. who he might be, right? right? Correct. So did you have any theories based on his MO and, and well, historical <clears throat> data that way? There was a number of things that we were able to do in terms of that same individual who had a look at or was driving past the white half-ton truck, had peered in the window, saw the what he thought was a naked woman. He was asked to come up with a description and all he could really remember was he thought it was a light-skinned male. So we had looked at the DNA and part of what we had done with the running shoe is it was a high top running shoe, mm -hmm. which at that time the fashion was African-American males were wearing the high top running shoes and not that white males didn't, but if you looked at the percentages, it was certainly very popular. We also looked at, we had some rare alleles in that profile. We scoured the databases and we found only six other individuals that had a particularly rare allele that matched this individual. In each case, they were also African-American. Now, there are general population databases for that as well. So were you able to come up with a random match probability we based did. on that? We did. And again, very unscientific because all of these alleles that we look at, all of the loci that we look at, 
are non-coding regions, and they do not really tell you the story in terms of the race. Sure. So the most it's common a profile likelihood kind of thing. Right, but yeah. it's it's very weak, and it's really not scientific. But the most common profile was also African American. So between the running shoe, the rare allele, and the general statistics, our advice to the task force was we can't tell you for sure what the race of the individual is, but at least open it up because at that point they were actually eliminating people who were not Caucasian. So we just said, look, let the DNA do the work. Now one of the other things we did was because we were trying to tee in if there was anything we could develop, there was a company called DNA Print at that time out of Florida who was advertising they could actually look at what racial profile may have been. So we did a little study because it was, it was not really validated for forensic work at the time. So we had a number of people, of course, of different extractions in our crime labs. So we did some samples and sent some, them some blind tests. All of those came back correct. So we did have one of the samples of the victims that where there was enough sole source DNA. So we sent it to them and it indicated also that it was an African-American male. Now they did it on pretty much in the same way though, weren't they at that time? Uh, they had different markers. Yeah, like they had uh, specific markers to try to tell you race. And oh, they okay. Had a triangle so they had, they, so they had developed a, little a bit specific, further. yeah, they had a specific technique. So we were really just using the codus loci, which as I said, are not designed at all to give you a racial determination. So we were really making a lot of not valid assumptions. We were just trying everything to try to get an indication, but particularly in high top running shoe, all of those things. But it did move us in the direction of sent to DNA print who confirmed you at least should be looking also at all races of individuals. Now it right. turned out that he was an African American male, but mm -hmm. given that we had a full DNA profile, why exclude anyone? Get the known sample from the individual, send it in and let the DNA do the match or non-match. Now of that course, again, hindsight is twenty twenty. Do you know whether they had actually identified the actual perpetrator and passed him, him over because of that? To my knowledge, that did not happen. Mm -hmm. I was just very concerned that that could happen. So okay. we just wanted to make sure that um, we were doing the right thing and that all this work wasn't somehow having somebody slip through um, just because we knew that he was killing with regularity. My friends, my neighbors, everyone was incredibly concerned, you know, fearful, and these are communities where, you know, those were our neighbors, our wives, our sisters. So we were working as hard as we possibly could to try to solve this because we knew it was a huge public safety issue. It doesn't sound like he was being that careful. No, he wasn't, but he was being successful. Yeah. When you consider that people were on guard and he was stay, still able to snatch women right out of the middle of society. They were taking their groceries home and he managed mm -hmm. to be able to you know, grab them with no one seeing him. So he was certainly smart enough to be able to do that, that even with the increased patrols and heightened awareness, he was still able to continue doing what he was doing. Throughout the series, was it entirely within Baton Rouge and Acadiana, or did he wind up going further afield? To our knowledge, it was that area. But mm -hmm. as it turns out, that was the area he lived in. He also worked in it, and as he had a truck, and he had a job tree pruning and whatnot, and that's how he was scouting out the sites and picking potential victims. And then when he had his opportunity, he had access to this vehicle, and mm -hmm. that's what he was doing. So, sure. you know, and again, just sort of a learning experience how do serial killers operate? We all have a certain sphere, and are we going to go a certain distance beyond that? So certainly he was not right by his home, but he, he stayed within a home area. Yeah, a very classical crime mapping kind of thing. Exactly. So yeah. a lot of learning that we were able to take out of it you know, after the fact. 
so the uh, fourth victim was found basically between Baton Rouge and Acadiana. Right. What about the subsequent victims? Was the next victim from your neck of the woods, or was it up? We only had the one, which is was the Nain Cologne. There was a total of six, but they were all over in the Baton Rouge territory, so to speak. Yes. So uh, there was debate as to why he ventured over on our side. Maybe it was the investigative pressure or what have you. But the rest of the victims were over on the Baton Rouge side. I see. What eventually broke the case? How was the case uh, eventually resolved? Well, a combination of factors. One of the things we did, which was pretty innovative, is we were really concerned about our cold cases and him being mm -hmm. one of those cases that we weren't working. And we also had a number of stains that we had kept for years going back. So we were fortunate enough to get some money for the legislature and we outsourced a lot of our old cases that we hadn't worked to see if he was in there. One of the cases, and actually I really have to credit one of our analysts, we were looking at every other case, making sure that while we were working on this, that if he committed a case where we had a living victim, and there was one in particular where a woman was being raped mm -hmm. and she was trying to fight off the assailant and he ripped out a computer cord out of the wall and he was beating her and strangling her, beat her quite badly. And just as she was about to pass out, her son, who was I believe 13 years old at the time, but he was a big kid for his age, and he scared off, just by him coming home, scared off the assailant. So he had attempted to rape her, but because she had a blue jean dress, which is, you know, got some thickness and body to it, he wasn't able to, you know, pull it up high enough. So we had that blue jean dress. We had looked at the rape kit and there was nothing there. And we were working on that blue jean dress to see if we could come up with a trace profile. So given it was Louisiana, the one thing the victim could remember was he was sweating quite profusely. Mm -hmm. But she had bled quite badly. There was a lot of blood on the dress. And so we used various means, including a lot of alternative lighting techniques or whatnot, to try to find some sweat stains. Mm -hmm. And so we worked those and quite a number of them because we, we were able to find a mixture of DNA the majority of the DNA was coming from her because of the blood, but we were able to find a very minor profile, but it just happened to have that rare allele and other alleles sure. that matched with him. The difficulty was because it was such a heavy mixture, we had a really a weak statistic, and usually with DNA, if you have a full pure profile, it can be in the one in trillions, this was like one in a thousand. So you get so used to the numbers, this was really a very weak but still was an inclusion. When we had that profile coming from the sexual assault, the beauty of that was she was a living victim. She had seen her assailant, and she had worked with the forensic artist who had drawn a picture just like you would sit down in a mall and have a sketch done of your face. It was an incredibly good picture of what this person looked like. Mm. And so given that we had a weak DNA link as a mixture, uh, we had a meeting with the task force, so it was kind of some one of those sure. cloak and dagger things where we met in a neutral secret location <laughs> and we had all the players there including the profiler and they were all excited about what we had and I had to temper the enthusiasm and it was like how do we reveal this and still get the right amount of weight to it because we didn't want to mislead yet we knew we, we thought we had something so we projected it right on the wall and had everyone well what is it is it one in a million is it no 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 it's like one in a thousand but hang on let me just show you. So given the mixture, you can see the very large peaks given to the major profile, hers like redwood trees, 
but then down way below you could see these little saplings and when I pulled his profile in underneath you could see that they went from devastated to picking up a little bit, <laughs> picking up a little bit to go we think there's something there and that's exactly what I'm saying but we have a sketch of this person we put every other thing out to the media this would be one of those times because either way this right. is a rapist but this may also be our killer let's put it out to the public yeah, he's, not, he's not some innocent guy exactly so yeah. let's see what we can do you're gonna put out and, the shoe you might as right. well put out the sketch and and at this point with the sketches because various people had come up with renderings of eyewitness or what have you and people were being turned in at this point i think we had 600 profile 600 sure. people from our area 2000 from baton rouge and the funny thing was I was even turned in myself. Somebody said, I know why you can't catch that guy. It's that crime lab guy on TV. He's <laughs> right. You so seem very that's trustworthy right, that's to right. me, so Ray. One, uh, one of uh, the yeah. sketches actually was me. It was funny uh -huh. because it's like, I didn't think my nose was that big, but it, you know, sure enough, it was me. <laughs> of course, my DNA profile didn't match, but one of the kind of great stories in terms of the power of DNA that came out of that was, I must have got a call a week saying, that's the guy. You know, from one of the sheriffs are very senior people because you know, they had another suspect they thought was good and they we got it right into the queue and of course the DNA would eliminate him. So what happened here was somebody was tipped off that they had a guy with a white half-ton truck in uh, Lafayette and he had a job in Baton Rouge so he drove across that very bridge every day with his white half-ton truck. Wow. And so the media had got the tip as well and so did my sheriff and as it turned out as the media got to his house he had a bunch of unpaid parking tickets and coincidentally the police were going to pick him up for the unpaid parking tickets so the media sees him being taken away mm -hmm. and they think this is it and so of course his DNA comes in and he is eliminated and I just thought here was a situation where if it were not for DNA, I mean, his neighbor saw this, it was on TV. This guy would have had a cloud over his head for the rest of his life. And right. He was totally clear the DNA just didn't because match of the vehicle him. he drove and, and the, illegally he parked and everywhere. All the rest. I just thought it was tremendous in terms of, you know, he would have been under suspicion. He right. was immediately cleared, and people in his neighborhood were able to feel safe again. But you can imagine there wasn't DNA, and he could swear his innocence, and how could he ever prove it? I just thought that was... No, no, that's very, very valuable. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that D, the, the use of DNA has actually uh, helped law enforcement an awful lot. You know, nobody wants to be implicating the wrong person. And, you know, we've had some cases, obviously, several hundred, where somebody was exonerated after the fact. And, you know, being able to apply DNA in these cases adds to, the, you know, just the fairness and the equity of the system. I think that is uh, such an important point, we can't stress it enough, that mm -hmm. uh, the number of times we eliminate people, because it really just goes unseen, mm -hmm. we eliminate people every day. There's a suspect who's implicated, the DNA or the fingerprint or what have you, immediately takes the investigators in another direction and we don't stand up and take credit for it. We only hear occasionally when the person gets out and thankfully there's DNA or something that's able to get the person out. We're about solving the crime with the right person, which obviously means there's a lot of innocent people or innocent suspects that are not implicated, and that is such an important piece. We're about public safety and getting the right person, matching right. obviously rights of people, but the right to be safe, but also to be not wrongfully implicated. And with objective forensic science, that is what we're able to bring is information that shows as correctly it's not this person as, as much as we can show. Sometimes it really does look like that person. Sure, it calls to mind a story from South Carolina. I'm sure our producer is a younger person, Lauren, and probably would not remember the name Strom Thurmond. Do you 
No, she says, no, Strom Thurmond was 100 years old in the U.S. Senate from South Carolina. And uh, he was a vigorous man. And he had uh, one of his kids was actually younger than me and was the U.S. attorney for South Carolina, yeah, Strom Thurmond Jr. And Strom Thurmond Jr. told me the story of right around the same time there was a case in South Carolina of a young girl who turned up raped and murdered. And there was a kind of a frontier justice that happened. She was white. They picked up an African-American, young African-American man uh, who was in the wrong place at the wrong time and was and a witness had fingered and uh, did the DNA and it didn't match. And they wound up doing some more investigative work and eventually what they found is that a young man who was actually one of the pallbearers, a white oh, high school kid who was just quote unquote a friend of hers who was actually the one who raped and murdered her. Now, in that case, it was an African-American man who was exonerated, thankfully. The Acadiana case that you're describing, it was the other way around. But in both cases, it was important to be able to pay attention to the DNA and, and let justice prevail with getting the right person. That is such a strong point, and the DNA, it matches who it matches. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the same thing for the latent fingerprint or, or the firearm. It's, it doesn't care about your color, it just cares about it matches this person or it doesn't. Or, right. And it eliminates this person who is the wrong person. So that's something that our scientists take a tremendous amount of pride. They don't put the kind of time and energy and passion into doing what they do to get the wrong person. You know, we would be the first ones to come forward if we see that the DNA is exonerating someone. So the task force released the sketch? So they released the sketch, so it was on the media. And it was funny because at that point the media was phoning all the time and I could talk about background but not about the case and there was a tremendous number of leaks coming out of uh, yeah. it was trying to very hard to contain the information so every outlet called me and said is this the killer <laughs> is this the right. killer and I could just say look I'm telling you it's very important that you get this sketch out there and so thankfully they all did very shortly thereafter a lot of things came together and of course we were you know getting hot on the trail. So right at the same time, Derek Todd Lee, who turned out to be the individual, had been questioned, had given up a DNA sample, and that sample right at that time was also processed by the lab in Baton Rouge. Mm. Our sketch came out, people said it looks like this guy, and then out came the profile from Baton Rouge saying, that's our guy. Like, same, how within, close? Within a day. Wow. So it was like right at the same time. So he had already given up his sample. He already had fled. So yeah, I think first he went to Chicago and they ended up catching him a few days later in Atlanta. So brought him back and yet again, very close in time, that cord that our rape victim was being strangled with, we discovered that there was a piece of cord laying right next to the victim who was found under the bridge. We got that cord sent from the other jurisdiction over to ours and that in turn was a physical match. And what had happened was when the son had come home, for whatever reason, as he drove away in his car, he had taken a piece of cord with him, and the son remembers this cord dangling out of the do door of the car as this person fled. He used that very cord to strangle his next victim, and a cord he had ripped out of the wall was a computer cord at the rape victim's residence. So we were able to take that cord from where it was broken, being ripped out of the wall, and match it right to the crime scene of the next victim, thereby putting the two together. We had her testimony. We had that very low trace profile, which now had become somewhat secondary, but it certainly pulled things together. And then the cord showing that the two cases were 
connected by physical evidence in addition to her eyewitness testimony. That's interesting. What had got him to the attention of law enforcement to get his DNA profile collected? That's a good question. I think at this point, I mean, given that they had questioned 200, or excuse me, I think it was 2,000 samples they had in Baton Rouge. Right. I think the fact Pretty that he, broadly. yeah, I, honestly, I can't say exactly how. I mean, he mm -hmm. was a Cree pruner and had been mobile and had been around the area, but somehow he had come to their attention and, and they didn't sure. get a sample. But one of 2,000 uh, could have been any one of them. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So in that sense, the MO was relatively consistent across the cases. He was doing strangulation in, in almost every case. No, he did a number of things. He had bludgeoned one victim to death and left her in her home. Others he had taken off and dumped elsewhere. I feel that he was listening to the media and then mm -hmm. changing what he was doing. So none of them were exactly the same. Uh, what was the same is they were sexually assaulted, so the DNA was there in each case. Right. Um, so that was consistent, and obviously they were murdered. They were all, say, young to middle-aged, nice-looking women, you know, vulnerable, and that he would come to the door with a ruse asking, you had car trouble, you know, was your husband home? If they would say no, he'd know there was nobody there, and he was a 200-pound, fairly strong guy, and he was just able to overpower them. I wonder what set somebody like that off. Was he just somebody who at some point decided he was going to be a violent serial killer? Because that's a major kind of uh, yeah. spree. Well, there was a lot of looking backwards. And certainly one of the things that was I had come out saying, because I got asked the question, well, we don't have this database built in Louisiana. What if we had this at the time? And I said, well, the likelihood is because you, know, you don't go from right. zero to serial killer virtually guaranteed he's got a prior record that he would have been in the database and so that we would have and should have caught him at the first murder if not before we should have saved five women's lives if we had this database in place at the time mm -hmm. and sure enough he had a number of prior arrests that would have been DNA eligible that he should have been in the database but because we had no database that was actually funded and active at the time we had to go through what we had to go through and then shortly thereafter along came the positions and the funding to get that database up and running. Sure. That would uh, motivate the politicians uh, Yes, quickly. it was very motivational. <laughs> yes. Uh, and I, I mean, and unfortunately, that's the way things go sometimes where a new tool comes in and you don't know what you have until you have the necessity. And then um, now we have the situation. They knew what they needed to do and they acted very quickly on it. So I don't think any of us could have known that we were going to have that situation. Louisiana, even though it looked like a great tool, how do you know? And so they certainly had put in legislation. It just hadn't been one of those things that was a huge priority, had been funded. But certainly as soon as they knew the implications of what this database could do, it was funded and was stood up as, as quickly as we could do it. When I started off in science all those years ago, I started off doing military work. And, and the reason is, is because if you ask any general or admiral or whatever, you know, the importance of science and technology to their work, they will tell you, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the United States has a great military because of the men and women in uniform and their dedication. But in the end, our technological edge is really, really important. And that was brought home, I think, in World War II and has been true ever since. And I believe that the analogy being is that DNA is kind of the atomic bomb of forensic science. It's really demonstrated just how powerful a tool forensic science can be. We'll never know. I mean, it's unknowable to some degree how many lives have been saved because those DNA databases are now in place and being used daily. 
And that is an awesome point. In this case, we can see the kind of trail of carnage that one individual was able to do. And just when you look at the investigative cost, just the extra patrols alone and overtime they put around LSU, Louisiana State University, mm -hmm. they spent $300,000 just in overtime just for extra patrols, let alone the investigation and all the crime lab work and whatnot. And right. the women's lives, the devastation, their families, I can't even imagine not to mention the fear in the community and, and whatnot. So when you look at that and the cost of the database and the prevention piece, you look at what one person can do and to know that you could have and should have stopped him way earlier in his criminal career. One of the things I found great about this case, and even though the shoe print didn't work, the fact that it had an 80% chance and then looking at that physical match of the court, another trace evidence piece that was, I think, really a, a strong piece of evidence, we would have tried everything but surely the DNA was a tremendous tool and the fact that it could be used in the database mm -hmm. to match each one of those cases to compare to what is now millions of suspects, it's certainly a phenomenal tool in terms of not only solving but preventing crime. And it's becoming more powerful all the time. I mean, your ability today to tackle a case like that and understand that individual's ethnicity and things like that with much greater confidence and answer the questions that you were raising in your mind, that's developed a lot as well. Absolutely. One of the things I did want to mention, which I alluded to earlier, was we went back and looked at all of our cold cases because we had all those cuttings and staff had them sit and go through boxes of cuttings. And we found 600 old cases where there was evidence of a sexual assault and we couldn't run them because we we're so busy with a serial killer, we outsourced them to a private lab, and we ended up developing just shy of 300 profiles out of those 600 cases. Well, even though we solved this case in the interim, we still had these 300 profiles. And as that database got built, we got a tremendous number of hits of those older mm -hmm. cases. And then something interesting happened. Well, we stopped working the cases, but meanwhile, we kept getting hits, and we kept getting more hits. As the database grew, clearly the other side of the equation, so you can't solve a case, don't have a profile of the crime scene. Sure. But as the database grew, we found that for every 800 or so known people went in the database, we got another hit. Sure. So we ended up, I did the math, and you know, we had an 800% return on investment on the cost of just enlarging the database, let alone the, the tremendous return we had in terms of working those crime scenes. So. The last time I looked at those cases, we had solved 144 of the 300. And in wow. those, we even had a serial rapist in Lafayette who had committed eight rapes. And our investigators went back to that case, found an old fingerprint that had never been entered in mm -hmm. the fingerprint system, or it was even before the fingerprint system had been fully developed, discovered that he was a convicted burglar who was wearing an ankle bracelet mm -hmm called him in, got a DNA sample, and solved the serial rapist case in Lafayette. So the ripple effect of what we learned and what we gained from that case was just, just a tremendous impact from so many different angles. And sure, I, I was at NIJ at the time, and we uh, were developing, of course, the big DNA funding grants, which really kicked in in 2003, right around that same time. And one of the things that I was a very big advocate for was the development of the database. And the theory basically is, is there's this classical database theory. You have information collapse. You know, if once the database gets to a certain size, then your likelihood of getting an identification, of getting a match, increases 
extraordinarily. Now, there's a, there's a point where it saturates out, but building that database has had an enormous effect on the power of DNA. Relying on having the suspect in front of you is not a very good strategy, but having the database and allowing yourself to, just like with fingerprints, be able to get those cold hits is extraordinarily important, and having it be big enough is important. Oh, absolutely, and just the idea, I mean, the traditional, when I came into crime labs as an investigator in trace evidence, and I was in hair and fiber, and you know, you look at shoes, if you didn't bring me a suspect, I could have a great shoe print, or a great fingerprint, or a great fiber, or even with our serology of the day. Mm -hmm. Unless we had a suspect, the case was done. The idea that today with our NIBE and the National Integrated Ballistics Information Network, mm -hmm. fingerprints, the database, as an investigator, you don't have to have a suspect, but if you have good forensic evidence at the scene, we can go get a suspect for you. That to me is an incredible advance in the tools that we can provide investigators to enhance public safety. Yeah, it's a very big story, a very important story. It's one I hope that we're able to highlight a little bit more going forward here because I know there's a lot of innovative work, I'm sure, in New York and elsewhere. New Jersey has done an amazing job using NIVE in, in that regard. Yes, they have, and uh, that's one of the, circling back to ASCLAD, and, and so the American Crime Lab directors, one of the things we're able to do, we don't have to reinvent the wheel in sharing information to see what innovative things, the use of NIVE for a 24-hour, 48-hour turnaround time. We know that perpetrators share guns, or they go out and they do shootings, and those cartridge cases are able to give us an indication of the gun which we can tie together to multiple crimes. But that information is perishable. It's not good a year from now, it's good hours or days from now. Mm -hmm. So to be able to get that quick response, which a number of jurisdictions have done, and then shown us all, oh my goodness, this is a great tool, we can try to take that back and implement them. So that's one of the things that we have started the initiative as a pilot project in, in New York State. And no surprise, we've solved a couple of huge cases, and here come the investigators, what a great tool, please give us this. So having somebody who's shown that something works, sharing that idea around is, is part of the wonderful value that our society can give, because we don't have to say, well, this just is a great idea. Mm -hmm. This is a great idea that we are using, and here's what to do and how to do it. And that's one of the things as a greater whole that we can bring so that other labs don't have to reinvent the wheel. They can take best practices and they can try it out and, and show that it works also in their jurisdiction, not have to take a chance that this may or may not work, and then learn from somebody who's actually done it what the pitfalls are and what the strengths are. That's a great vision. We're going to be looking forward to this next year as you being the president of ASCLAD. Well, as I said, i got big shoes to fill, but I'm very excited about what we can do and some of the great ideas and tools that we can just make people's lives better. Thank you so much for being on Just Science, Ray. Thank you for having me, it's been a pleasure. This episode concludes Case Studies Season 2 of Just Science. Our next season will be a special release season on leadership, so stay tuned. Please visit the FTCOE website at ForensicCOE.org for more information about this podcast. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.